Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Yo, it's good New York. This is Jack Devine and he, him pronouns. And you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute live on WBAI 99.5 FM. We are a socialist radio show and podcast for members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The DSA is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 66,000 members nationwide. And NYC DSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 5,500-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Before I get rolling on our normal introduction, um, and it's clearly not normal times, I wanted to play you all a brief clip. And so while you're listening to this, I want you to think real hard about one question. Whose side are you on? Let's play that back one more time. What's the location for the Don't put that over yet. So just maybe let that sit with you as you take in kind of all the perceptions about this supposedly uh, violent looting that who is the violence really coming from? Because like, as I was sitting in my apartment last night with a helicopter hovering over my head and sirens blaring as the cops circled over my around my community in their caravan, I was thinking about what working class black organizers and intellectuals have long known, that the police are an occupying military force here in New York and in other cities around the country. Cops are not workers. They are managers for the capitalist state. They're the, out, they're the outside agitators who invade the city from Long Island and assault our communities in order to protect the private property of their wealthy masters. When the masses demand justice, they are met with tear gas and police batons. The corporate media seems to care more about the broken windows of billion-dollar corporations that have built their wealth on looting the workers of the world than the broken jaws of civilians who are taking a stand against the extrajudicial executions by state officials of our black brothers and sisters. When the coronavirus struck our communities, it revealed that we have been starved of the necessary resources to deal with any sort of public health crisis. Now, over 100,000 are dead, and the total continues to climb. But there always seems to be enough money for state violence. As the social welfare state has been drained, the budget for state violence overflows with military-grade equipment for the expanding police force and more cages for the black communities they attack. However, this is not the time to despair. The oppressed are standing up and fighting back. So shout out to all the courageous comrades out there on the front lines. Today, we're joined by two returning guests, Cheryl and Justin, to discuss the uprisings against police violence and for black liberation. We're also hoping to hear from Jordan reporting directly from the streets as the struggle continues. Um, but considering the situation out there, uh, we can't be confident that he's going to be able to reach us. But first, the headlines. Protests erupted at the Barclays Center and throughout New York in response to the police killings of George Floyd in Minneapolis and Breonna Taylor in Louisville. The NYPD response included beating protesters, firing pepper spray, and attacking them with moving vehicles. State Senator Zelnor Myrie and Assemblymember Diana Richardson were among those pepper sprayed. The NYPD tried to commandeer city buses to transport protesters to jail, but bus drivers refused with the support of the Transit Workers Union. The mayor defended the NYPD officers who drove their SUVs into protesters, provoking widespread condemnation. 
New York City will begin phase one of its reopening plan on June 8th. Phase one includes resumed work in wholesale business, construction, manufacturing, and curbside retail. About 400,000 New Yorkers are scheduled to return to work. But the mayor admitted that concerns about public transportation and the absence of an MTA plan. The State Board of Elections was sued by disability rights groups for not making the new absentee ballot program more accessible. The Brooklyn Housing Court is likely still weeks away from holding in-person hearings, in part due to unique challenges of the building at 141 Livingston Street. Governor Cuomo's moratorium on evictions is set to expire on June 20th. Included in Governor Cuomo's recent austerity budget was a broad grant of immunity to hospitals and nursing home companies for any liability they might have otherwise incurred in their response to COVID-19. And in election news, Jabari Brisport is blowing away the field in fundraising thanks to a massive small-dollar donor base. In the latest campaign finance filing, his campaign reported a sizable lead in total funds raised and cash on hand, in addition to an overwhelming lead in total donors nearing 2,900. Bernie Sanders also endorsed Jabari on Wednesday. Gay City News covered Brisport's campaign finance report, noting that he would make history as the first out LGBTQ black state senator in New York, even though many liberal LGBTQ Democratic organizations have endorsed Jason Salmon. And finally, multiple New York incumbents pledged to return donations from police, correction, and court officer unions. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethorn.nyc. So um, we are joined by Cheryl right now. We're still waiting to hear from Justin. He might be coming on later in the show. Uh, So Cheryl, can you hear me? Yeah, can you hear me? Yes. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us on uh, Revolutions uh, Per Minute today. Uh, I guess before we get started, just uh, how are you doing in this, um, I guess, exciting and dangerous time? Uh, Chuck, I'm, I'm, uh, first of all, uh, very, very tired. Um, I think a lot of us are, um, we've, a lot of people have mobilized, um, a lot of great organizing, a lot of great resisting very quickly. Um, so like all of them, I'm, I'm a little, I'm a little tired, but I'm also extremely, uh, inner energized, energized by what I'm seeing in the city. Yeah. I think, uh, just from talking to, uh, organizers and hearing what they have to say, I think that sums up a, a very uh, uh, predominant perspective that people have on what's happening. Um, it's it's exhausting to fight against such like unrelenting police brutality every day. Uh, so I, I guess um, diving further into it, it's like what has the situation been like on the streets? Like how do organizers prepare themselves for an action with the looming threat? and constant reality of police violence. Yeah, um, there's definitely uh, all the actions I've seen have, you know, um, advise people to uh, wear masks, try to be uh, aware um, and practice social distancing as much as possible. Um, Try to uh, uh, prepare people for, you know, um, what you might encounter on the street i see a lot of tips being passed around about you know how to dress how to stay close with with a group you know not be out there alone um which resource you can have um so trying to do this prep but there's just an incredible number of people on the street right now who are showing up um they're showing up to actions because the the digital organizing has been has been really fantastic by organizers around the city but a lot of these people are showing up to actions and they may have never shown up to an action before you know um you're getting a lot of first-time protesters out in the street right now uh which is amazing um and uh, can be overwhelming but the so the energy like on the street for sure is is one of just like charged up um charged it's just charged up feeling amongst amongst people who just weren't weren't out there protesting before um and and so there it has a just an entirely different feeling um especially as the days go on you know and people start to 
to build up their confidence um, in, in these large formations. Um, you know, I think each day has proceeded with people refuse, like learning to not refuse to back down. Uh, and you can, you can just feel that through the crowd. Yeah, I think you're hitting on something that's like so important about this new wave of struggles and how it's a, a radicalizing moment for people um, to see and experience this brutality firsthand. Maybe some uh, people who don't experience it on a daily basis, but were outraged by seeing the violence on TV, went to the protests and then um, were dealt with it themselves. And I want to dive into that in a bit, but... First, I just wanted to uh, bring up because, you know, with this current situation of coronavirus um, and also people may be scared or maybe they have a certain disability that uh, prevents them from getting involved on the streets. So for people who can't be out there um, directly confronting police violence, um, what are some other ways that they can aid in the struggle? Um, Do you have any specific ideas uh, on that or have you heard of um, any other ways that people are getting involved? Yeah. Um, I've definitely, uh, still, there's still bail money is needed. Um, their bail money will continue to be needed. Um, there are different bail funds. Um, there's some very popular bail funds out there. I know who've gotten a lot of attention. Um, but you know, please look around cause there are, there are multiple efforts and there needs to be multiple efforts, uh, to, to really make sure, uh, that we're, we're covering everyone. Um, but bail funds are a way, an easy way for people to contribute. Um, certainly I think, uh, supporting getting the word out about actions uh, is, is very useful. Digital organizers need their work amplified. Um, so definitely a very uh, low energy action that everyone can take. Um, there needs to be some jail support. Um, and this can, jail support means supporting these people who get arrested uh, during the protest. Uh, its mentality is really that no one's going to be left behind. Um, so there's a huge jail support network that has been uh, mobilized very quickly. Uh, and there are people who do jail support in person, but there are also ways for people to, to plug into helping coordinate jail support um, from afar. There's lots of chats to, to, to coordinate. There's lots of um, funds to gather for things like uh, uh, getting people rides home, um, getting the supplies uh, where they need to be. Um, maybe if you have a car and you want to just like quickly drop some supplies off, um, like doing something like that. So jail support. And then I would really push that people should continue to support mutual aid funds that were, um, formed originally, originally just for the pandemic. These mutual aid funds, like the grocery funds, getting people groceries, um, are still incredibly important. Um, they're even more important as when you're protesting in the street, um, you 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 may not have time to to do certain things um, that you would otherwise be doing, and and those people get support from mutual aid networks. So contribute to your mutual aid networks, contribute to those funds, um, continue supporting uh, that work, uh, even as we start to support new funds like bail funds uh, and um, jail support networks. So I would say jail support, um, bail funds, and mutual aid uh, networks support those things and you can find ways to support those from afar. Yeah. The kind of your summary there, I think really covers both after the original question I asked you and then that summary of all the other ways that people can plug in to this movement highlights how this is not just some like spontaneous action. There's obviously aspects of that, that this moment in itself is kind of, an organic eruption of a built up animosity and just reaction to the brutality. But there's also, as you're saying, these mutual aid networks have been in place for a long time and they're ready for this moment to come in and be part of this really crucial moment for the movement uh, to further build power. And then there's so many uh, necessary tasks that it's not just the protest action itself, which is obviously such a crucial uh, site of struggle and a place that um, it's really encouraging to see people taking a stand. But none of that is really possible um, without all of the 
really, really um, incredible work that um, I've been hearing about with in terms of raising money, making sure the money is getting down to the jails to get people out of prisons, the moral support that people are uh, providing, the way that people are getting the message out, and that has to be strategic. I would say I have uh, some critiques of some of the Instagram posts that are on the uh on Instagram today of this blackout thing. I, I think that might actually yeah. be kind of concealing some of the um, yeah. videos of the struggle and of police brutality. So it, this sort of work also has to be uh, strategic and well thought out. So there's kind of this combination of this energy that is emerging um, because of police brutality, but also these networks of uh, solidarity that have been uh, built up before the struggle and now are kind of um, blossoming in this moment. Um, but to get back to why this is happening, uh, the, the police officers who murdered George Floyd clearly lit a spark, but like no movement becomes massive due to one single event. So why did this uprising emerge in this particular moment? And in what ways is it a culmination of the struggles for black liberation since Ferguson? Yeah, um, Ferguson was uh, incredibly shameful, the, the response that um, the rest of the country gave Ferguson. Um, but I I don't like to say, like, people sometimes are like, you know, Ferguson happening, happened and nothing changed. And I, I don't think that's true. I think, you know, there was a lot of um, amazing activists who uh, have, have lost their lives, have, have lost a lot of things, you know. Um, coming out of Ferguson did not get the support they needed, but people watching from afar um, all across the country, I think young, uh, especially young black organizers were radicalized by Ferguson um, and learned a lot from Ferguson. So, uh, it, you know, it's a important kind of turning point there. Uh, and then with the, you know, Trump election, um, I think this political climate has in, increasedly like there's this idea during the Obama era that we had uh, papered over all of the, you know, <laughs> terrible, terrible things of the, the racialized, like uh, fucked upness of the of 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 the United States. But like, I don't think I don't think that was it, it was I don't think that narrative was possible anymore with the Trump presidency. So I don't want to discount that 2016 um, definitely changed things. Um, uh, and so you've got this like powder keg, uh, the long, long history of brutality towards black people, um, in the United States, um, that continues, uh, even as we get, uh, some sort of, uh, quote unquote reforms and, and, uh, progress, uh, still there's this incredible brutality towards, um, and racism towards black people in the United States. Uh, and then we hit this coronavirus moment. And I really think this just the, the, the situation economically and the situation, just the lack of care that you get from, from the state that there is, there's, doesn't seem to be an effort to, to hold people in any sort of caring caring way by the state. Uh, so much so that you have to have these mutual aid networks pop up. And the mutual aid networks are incredibly stressed, but doing like heroic, amazing work um, to the point where I know that uh, there has been outreach um, from certain people working in uh, nonprofits and like, governments trying to like uh, – use mutual aid network resources because they don't have them you know um the mutual aid networks stepping in where the state just was not was refusing to step in um all of that coming together this this long simmering um resentment of the violence that black people face in the u.s um and and the the situation economically here uh just being being told like your death doesn't really matter uh like during the coronavirus pandemic you know um your life doesn't feel like it matters i think to the state uh so yeah i think there's just these these factors building up and uh you know i i felt i was very angry uh over the past couple of months uh it, you start to you start to think I 
you get sick and tired of being sick and tired that quote i think that that's really what sums it up you really do and i think black uh black people have gotten sick and tired of being sick and tired and i think many other people also uh have joined in these protests too um because it's not just black people in the streets now uh because they're also sick and tired uh and so I, I I don't think there's a, a way now to put put Pandora back in the box. Yeah, I think there's there's no going back to quote unquote normal. Even though I don't really think there ever was a a normal period in history. That's always kind of a things are always changing. But this is clearly a, a moment of rupture. Uh, that uh, the struggle is seemingly intensifying. And I think you did a really great job of covering how it's both these kind of major developments like um, the coronavirus and kind of the subsequent unemployment that comes from Trump's election, uh, but also these this organization that it's it's not just something that happens automatically, but people need to build power to be able to fight in these moments. Justin, uh, can you hear me? I believe that you're on the air now, too. Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry if it's a little noisy and outside. No worries. That's all right. Uh, Justin, uh, Cheryl is just weighing in kind of why this uh, uprising occurred in this moment. I'm not sure how much you were able to hear of her answer, but is there anything uh, that you want to add? I mean, Cheryl said some really great stuff that, that I that I agree with entirely. Um, it's you know the the coronavirus hits. It expo- you know it, it it exposes all the ways in which society leaves leaves most of us behind. Um, you know, we have tons of people getting sick. Uh, tons of people that are too scared to go to a hospital, uh, a, because the hospitals don't have all the stuff they need because we've been, you know, closing, closing hospitals and under, under supplying and understaffing hospitals. Uh, plus people don't have healthcare. They do have healthcare. It does, you know, not all that much for you. Um, so you have that. Then you got people corporations, businesses, you know, the state telling us, you know, non-essential workers have to go back to their jobs uh, and essential workers have to go and risk their lives so people can have, you know, the necessities they need to, to get by during this crisis. Um, so then you already have a kind of baked in, you know, discontent and people just kind of like are fed up. You know, um, and then this then this happens again um, for an innumerable time, um, and what you would expect happens again. The state covers for this killer cop, um, and it's like it's it's kind of a it's, a it's a bit of a perfect storm. So that you got all these people, you got you know unprecedented unemployment. People got nothing to do. People are fed up. People are angry. People are in the streets, you know. And it's not just black people who are who are fed up with getting killed. It's 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 people that that it's 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 you know it's it's people of all colors supporting supporting us, saying you know yeah you shouldn't be getting killed and everything everything is messed up and we're going to make noise about it. I mean, it's been really you know I remember watching the the live stream the other night of the the what was going on in Minneapolis and just seeing, you know, not just, not just black folks, but, you know, indigenous folks, uh, brown folks, white folks, everybody out there in solidarity. And it was powerful. You know, the circumstances were terrible, but it was powerful. Um, and I think now we have to keep this up. Like, like Cheryl said, you know, I'll use a different, I'll use a different metaphor, but the genie's out of the bottle. I don't think you can put it back in. Yeah, something has changed there. This is absolutely a radicalizing moment for people. I mean, what I was saying in the intro, it's like it's so obvious now, at least it should be, that the police are an occupying force in these cities. 
and that it's become so absurd the way that resources are just piled more and more into state the institutions of state violence while at the same time the welfare state is being defunded and collapsing and and there's not enough resources to deal with this public health crisis and there's nothing being done to deal with climate change and people are getting a meager amount of money in on this uh, era of mass employment so this is kind of just exploding all these tensions uh, to the surface and uh, something that I've been thinking about is like like who and what are the cops actually protecting and serving and like how has this rebellion uh, against police violence like highlighted the the way that the struggle for uh, black liberation and abolitionism are central to any class struggle in the United States that is worth that name. Cheryl or Ju- Cheryl, you want to go first or Justin, uh, Justin, you're about to dive ahead, in. So. No, Cheryl, go ahead. Oh, I was like, Hmm, let me take a moment. <laughs> um, Justin, you go first. Let me, I want to, I want to piggyback off to something smart. I know Justin's going to say. What I'm, what I was going to say was, you know, the, the other day, you know, some, somebody, you know, reminded me of, of and I'm not, I was, I was going to try and pull up the quote so I could look at it exactly, but, but something that, that CLR James, you know, the, the Trinidadian Marxist activist scholar, uh, author of the Black Jacobins, and a lot else, you know, wrote about, you know, the the struggle for for Black liberation being such a core component of any liber of all liberatory struggles, particularly the the the, the socialist one um, of the proletarian struggle. Like it's like especially in this country with its history, it's like, you know, as a Marxist, as a materialist, you have to understand what the country was built on, which is, you know, the theft and murder uh, of indigenous people uh, for that land on which to create wealth. Um, And then, again, the theft and subjugation and murder of, of black people to build that wealth, um, people want to kind of put 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 struggles for black liberation in the background. But I don't think you can in this country if you're if you're serious about making any kind of you know proletarian movement for, for socialism. Um, so this is not a particular fringe fight here. This is a fight for like the the, the very soul of this country. If we're to make it anything like it like it claims to be, yeah, I agree with that, Justin. And that was great that you were able to bring up the a little bit of a quote. Um, uh, I, yeah, I see the 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 subjugation of of, of black people uh, and indigenous people um, as like really one of the founding principles of the United States of America. Uh, so when you talk about you want to have change in this country, uh, there, the, the, if you, if you want to really make change, I think you do have to, to, to start with black liberation, not end with black liberation, like start, start with it, start working from the, from that point, because you're, you're going to be starting at the, at the kind of like building block of a lot of the things that are so terrible about the United States of America. If you start from black liberation. Absolutely. And I think the, uh, like Justin was bringing up, uh, Marxism and historical materialism, and there's no way to look at you, the United States and Cheryl, you were saying this as well. It's a founding principle. There's no way to look at the history of the United States and understand it without knowing that the racialized division of labor and property ownership is central to the way this country functions. And we can't just imagine these differences away. They're institutionalized. They are built into these uh, 
arms of the state, like the police, that are directed against black people. I mean, the the police first emerged in this country um, as slave catchers and also to break up strikes. So these functions, class domination and racial domination, are completely linked. Um, and before we move on to uh, the next few questions that I have for both of you, I just want to remind our listeners that you are tuning in to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite pod- podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today, we are talking about this incredible uprising that is occurring against police violence um, that is occurring in the midst of this massive crisis of coronavirus, of depression, um, and but also alongside a, a wave of global uprisings over the past year from uh, here in the uh, in the U.S. colonial sphere of Puerto Rico to uh, Chile to France, um, and I could go on and on and on. And what makes WBAI so different than the corporate media is that on WBAI, you're actually hearing from the perspective of organizers, of people who are in the fight, who are committed to the struggle, who know what's actually going on on the ground and have an analysis that is not rooted in perpetuating the ruling institutions in our society, but actually critiquing them thoroughly and looking into them. And right now, you know, this sort of institution is under threat. And the corporate media during this crisis is spreading really nonsense narratives that like the looting is what we have to be worried about while looting is happening every single day by the ruling class to the working people that this country was built on looting, on the looting of Africans and bringing them here in chains and then making them slaves and building up the wealth of the South or looting the land of indigenous people. And this looting continues. So don't, don't buy into their narrative. And in order to challenge that narrative, we need institutions like WBAI. So... This is a really, really great time to become a WBAI buddy. This, it, we know that it's, it might be a difficult time financially for some people, but if, if you can afford to commit to the station, just go to WBAI.org and become a WBAI buddy in the name of Revolutions Per Minute. We have some great premiums that we're planning to put out later in the month, but right now you can um, give your annual contribution that exceeds $25 for the year, and you can become a voting member of the station. You can get a tote bag, a membership card. Um, There's also ways to get WBI masks now if you want to be out, showing your love for the station. If you're becoming a buddy uh, from listening to this show, let us know so that the station knows of this kind of programming, that it's uh, part of this five o'clock strip where we're covering local politics and here on Revolutions Per Minute from the socialist perspective, um, that here at Revolutions Per Minute, we're highlighting this community control of institutions and WBAI is, is one of those. So we want to continue to fight and to do that, we need funds. So you can either go to the website, wbai.org, or you can call in 516 620 3602. Again, that number is 516-620-3602. And we, you know, if you're a listener, you're part of this community, contribute and fight against the corporate media narratives that are trying to place the blame on the people who are struggling against this unrelenting police violence and brutality. To now shift back to our conversation on, um, this ongoing crisis. Um, one kind of slogan that's getting out there and I think is a really important one is uh, defund the police. And so I just want to give a few statistics that really highlight the absurdity of what's going on right now. So we have this major health crisis and the mayor is refusing to cut the already egregious police budget, which is more than anything else in the budget. 
and is cutting $124 million from summer youth employment programs, $43 million from pre-K, $100 million from fair student housing, $250 million from health and human services in the middle of a pandemic. This is an outrage. But unfortunately, it's not a new trend, but just an escalation of a pattern that has existed for decades. Uh, so Cheryl, I know you have to hop off in a couple minutes, so I want to give you the first opportunity to answer this. But why are like social welfare budgets being cut while the institutions of state violence receive more and more funding? And why is it essential that defunding the police be central to any socialist platform? Like, How does this tie into like an abolitionist mode of organizing? Uh, yeah, so obviously, uh, you know, the phrase the money uh, where your mouth is. Um, I think what's interesting is that we don't actually like this. <laughs> the city doesn't put its money uh, where its mouth is. Uh, they, in fact, they say one thing out the side of their mouth and then do another thing. So you supposedly you care about the health of your citizens and education, the youth. Um, but you're going to cut funding for these essential programs. Um, that really shows you where the priorities are. And it, the priorities clearly are not with the people, at least not all of the people. Um, it, they're with certain uh, people in the, the police. Um, we have to think who's in the end benefiting from that. If not most of us, those of us who would like our kids to uh, have free pre-K and 3K, um, those of us who would like to ride, you know, a uh, well-functioning uh, transportation system, who want to have health care, et cetera, uh, it's not benefiting you. So who is it benefiting? Um, but yeah, defunding the police on on that. How's that uh, fitting into my vision of like the world we want to build? Uh, this is step one to abolishing the police. Um, the police don't do anything um <laughs> they don't do any real work <laughs> yeah i mean the thing that they do is like you know um murdering and killing but that doesn't count as as work you know um the actual like work of like uh, uh yes keeping each other safe is important but the police don't do that um the so well, ultimately if the police don't do that thing that supposedly they're they're there to do for us um why are why are we funding them defund them um, we'll disarm them. Uh, we eventually want to disband them, I think, abolish abolish the police. Uh, so, but the first step in this is you have to take this funding back and put it into things that actually build the socialist vision, the, the vision that where everyone is taken care of, building that vision of that world. You have to have some money from somewhere, and we can take it from the cops, and we can put it towards uh, 3K, we can put it towards uh, healthcare, we can put it towards transportation, um, so that's definitely why we should defund the police. Think about what the police end up doing in your community uh, versus where all of that money could be used instead. Yeah, spending millions of like hundred tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars on riot gear, like tear gas that is poisoning people while people are uh, dying in hospitals while nur nurses are wearing trash bags. It's it's a complete. Outrage, and I think your point about the police uh, not necessarily being the people uh, keep us safe is extremely true. When you really dive into what like crimes are actually um, getting looked into, or something like domestic violence, where uh, police are actually the people in the population who are most likely to commit it, and it is the most commonly occurring violent crime in our society. So it doesn't really make sense to be having the most violent people be the ones who are quote, like protecting us from violence. Uh, yeah. Cheryl, is, uh, do you still have to hop off now or uh, are you sticking yeah. around for a few more? Um, well, yeah, I do have to hop off. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, it was great to hear from your perspective and uh, stay safe out there. Thank you. Uh, so, J Justin, uh, anything to add on this um, kind of this campaign, not really campaign, but this programmatic goal of defunding the police? And there's also calls for disarming the police. 
um, and disaffiliating them uh, from from unions. Uh, so, like, what are your what are your thoughts on these kind of slogans? Are they a rallying co- cry that the uh, movement can organize around? Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. It's it's this is this is the rallying cry we need. You know, defund. You know, a lot of what Cheryl said. I mean, I, all of what Cheryl said, I agree with. I think the. I think sometimes people counterpose, you know, defunding the police and divestment from the police and 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 and, and police and prison abolition. And I want to kind of dispel that notion a bit because I think, you know, um, myself at least, um, we're 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 highly unlikely to just end having cops tomorrow. Um, but I think what we can do by defunding the police. Um, and directing those funds toward, you know, all of the things that we don't pay for currently in our society or we think are less important than, you know, a violent, you know, you know, force of people that basically gets thrown at every single problem society has. Um, you know, if we invest in emergency management, we invest in, you know, public uh, higher education invest in our, you know, hospitals or Department of Health, um, invest in community development and, and youth programs, uh, invest in our communities more meaningfully. You know, if we do those things with that money that we take away from policing, um, and yes, I want to take it, I want to defund them entirely, but, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a realist. I don't think that's going to happen, at least not in the near term. We're able to do that, and we're able to direct to direct those funds towards all the different kinds of social services that currently get, you know, very little funding and are about to get even less uh, with the coming austerity. Um, hopefully, we can head off. I think if we're able to build up that and build up all the capacities that currently we just throw police at for every little problem of society, we begin to see a different society. If we're able to be, see a different society, then the, the necessity of, of, of of police is brought into question. Um, the necessity of what we what we formerly understood police to be comes into question. Um, so I think that is that is that is the path toward abolition. You know, there's a great article in the Appeal um, by you know a, a, a past guest of Revolutions for Men, Julia Salazar, about defunding the police. I, I encourage everybody to look at it. Maybe you can put it in the show notes or something. Um, but talking about concrete steps to defunding the police which build that path toward abolition um you know when we talk about disarmament you know no first of all like you know why why do we have small little armies in every city what is the point of that um you look at other countries um other industrialized countries Yes, they have armed they have armed police, but not not in any way, shape, or form near what we've got here in the United States uh, and New York City specifically. Um, and then yeah, disaffiliation. I, think- I, I mean, you know, just final point about about disaffiliation. I mean, I think you know, yeah, okay, you, you're 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 somebody that gets a job working for the police, become a cop. That's your job. You do that for a wage to survive. I still don't think cops are workers. Um, I think they serve capital, they serve the ruling class, they serve white supremacy. Um, they shouldn't be part of the AFL-CIO. All police associations, unions need to be dis- disaffiliated from the AFL-CIO. The AFL-CIO, if it's to be about the working class, serving the working class, it needs to disaffiliate all the cop unions. Because the unions, all they do is, is protect cops when they kill, when they kill people, when they kill black people. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, you made a number of uh, really crucial points there. Uh, one that uh, I was trying to highlight earlier is that cops are really more managers than workers in, in any sense, that they are, or if not managers, they are an army on behalf of protecting capital, and be they are consistently used against working class people. So to put them in the same category, to me, seems absurd when they're always prepared to fight against any effort to build working class power. 
And on the disarmament point, um, something that uh, what you brought up in terms of these other uh, industrially uh, developed countries that don't have these massively armed police, police forces, they often don't carry guns around with them. Like, is this the horizon that we want to work towards as abolitionists? No. Um, but I think it does reveal that places where there is a more developed welfare state, where there actually are uh, social services for people that aren't means tested and often other ways of punishing them, uh, that you don't have a like kind of depraved authoritarian uh, setup for working class people where they are constantly being monitored and punished, especially in America's racialized populations. And the key point about uh, defunding uh, that you made is that, yeah, it's, it's not like we're going to get rid of the cops, snap our fingers. You can't legislate it away. It's, but it's the same thing as with socialism. You can't, we're not going to be able to legislate into socialism, but it doesn't mean that it's not worth working towards certain reforms that create space for more uh, organizing. And as you were kind of hinting at, um, building a real alternative that can be actually believed because it's being experienced. Um, so we only have a few minutes left, but I did want to get your thoughts on something because you know we're we're in an organization uh, DSA that I think we both think is very important and does a lot of really great work. But it is also it's a democratic organization, so it should be open for critique. So was DSA prepared for this moment? Like what potential strengths and weaknesses of the organization have been revealed by this emergent struggle? And how can the socialist movement reorient its strategy to make the struggle for black liberation core to its theory and practice? So, you know, I mean, prior to, to this moment, I mean, and even stepping back even further beyond, you know, the murder of George Floyd to, you know, and then coronavirus. Before coronavirus, you know, we had our legislative campaigns um, that we were advocating for. You've had you've had those you have had some of those people on your on the show. Um, we, we need to get those we need to get those folks into Albany. We need to get Jabari Brisport, Marcella Matings, uh Zoran Lamdani, Forest Front Forest. We need to get them into Albany. Uh, we need to get some Elias Lopez uh, to, to Washington DC. Um, that said, you know, this moment is not an opportunity, in my opinion, to just make another pitch for, for those candidates. And those candidates are out there in the streets right now, too. So, you know, my props to them. You know, I'm proud of them. I can't wait for them to be the people representing us uh, in, 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 in legislative bodies. Um, but I think we have a lot of tools in our toolbox and some are sharper than others. And I think that the legislative toolbox and the, and the, and the electoral tool, uh, rather, and the, you know, our field organizing tools were very sharp. Coronavirus hit, people can't knock on doors. That changes things. We have to shift to other means of organizing. That's been a bump, a bit of a bumpy road. I think it's kind of demonstrating, you know, sometimes you need, we're going to have to think about, I wish that we had thought, ahead of this a little bit more about how do we organize our 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 our, our members in a, in a bit more of a kind of like locally based way um neighborhood way i think back to the cpusa and how like a branch was not you know you know a whole swath of a borough like central or north or south brooklyn um a branch was like a little bit of a neighborhood and there was like 15 people and there were several branches with it, which constituted a, a section and sections constituted regions. Um, you know, I, 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 I would like to see us, you know, folks who live, you know, in proximity to each other, having a little bit more of a relationship to each other. Um, and what, what kind of opportunities for organizing that creates, you know, instead of the more, we build a campaign and we, and we, and we fit it to whatever context, which, which, which has had some success for us, some pretty great success. I'd like to see us try a little bit more, um, being a little bit more organized in the communities in which we live, in which we work. Um, 
having a connection to those communities because we're part of them, you know, regardless of whether or not DSA may be a bunch of, you know, downwardly mobile white millennials um, who are, you know, moving into places that are gentrifying. Um, they live there too. And the landlord is, is screwing them over just as much as anybody else. Um, relating to people in the places where you are um, as people um, and building relationships and finding out what their struggles are. When you find out what their struggles are, you figure out how can I help with this? Cause it's not just their struggle. It's yours because they're your neighbor. Um, what could we, what could we build with that in this current moment? We don't know, but I think we got to kind of try and re- reverse engineer it now, you know? Yeah. I mean, if, if we're going to be transforming the social relations of society, then we need to be building those relations on the ground. And I think there are some really encouraging developments um, with some tenant unions emerging in this crisis, people getting involved in the protests, providing their knowledge and resources, um, like the medics and red rabbits that we have. But there is, there's so much more work that needs to be done, and I would love to dive into this further, but we are coming to the end of the show. So I just want to thank you so much for uh, joining us, Justin. Um, this, I think, is your third or fourth appearance on Revolutions Per Minute, and we hope to get you back as soon as you can. Uh, this uh, was Jack Devine with Revolutions Per Minute, and we'll be back with you next week, Tuesday at 5 p.m.